hi everybody, how's everyone doing? So, and thanks to uh, Zeba for inviting me on. Uh, I was a KUCI DJ for many years. Played the very song that you're hearing in the background quite a few times when I was a DJ, uh, starting out here about 20 years ago. It's uh, Slow Dive's Avalon 2. And uh, maybe a bit loud if <laughs> we're going to have a full conversation here. So, sorry, I'm going to be technical wonk here <laughs> for a second, so, and all that, so... Yeah, is there any way to sort of... Uh, the music, yeah. Yeah, sort of adjust it down. Sort of a distant, a distant flow. There you go. Okay, so it can sort of hover in the background. We'll have some Arvo paired up later, and that'll be sort of a, th- a thing to sort of uh, keep things going there. Anyway, so... Sorry, I seem to have taken over your show here, Ziva, explaining oh, about things and all the rest of it. So you're you're the host. What what yeah. more do you want to say? Do you want to oh, no. kick it in? You're a great um, library person to interview that's familiar with KCI as well. And I'd like to know a little bit about how you got to where you're at. So. Okay, all right. So, well, first, again, thanking Ziva mm-hmm. for inviting me on to the show. Uh, I know she's had a variety of coworkers on here. I should say, uh, first off, to everyone, hello. Uh, I, uh, I've been working here at uh, UC Irvine in their library system now since the very beginning of 1997. Uh, that was literally my first day on the job right after Christmas and New Year's, uh, just uh, kicking in with that. So that's how, ex- how long I know I've been working here. And uh, I came into library work through a slightly circuitous route. I do not have an MLS degree, and actually I'm not really planning on getting one. I, for a variety of reasons, uh, don't have the interest and don't feel a particular need. Uh, but I should explain a little more about uh, how I got into this field for a, uh, in, a, in a broad sense. And uh, this is kind of a compliment uh, to a recent series of interviews I did with uh, Scott Woods up in Toronto, and I'll have more to say about that a little down the line. That's sort of talking about my uh, music, music writing life, so this is more just talking about my library life. Um, when I was growing up, I was always a big reader and uh, trying to be a writer, as I could, uh, just you know, youthful efforts and things like that. And so for me, libraries were always just one of those things that, you know, it's where one went. It just was a very obvious place to go. My uh, parents were great readers themselves. So going to the local libraries, wherever we happened to be, as we were a Navy family, moved around a lot, discovering the children's library section initially, of course, and then, you know, graduating as time went on to some of the other sections out there and discovering what was there, that was just something that, uh, was always always to hand, and there was also the home library as well, the many books that uh, we had around uh, our various houses uh, as we went over time. Not that we had multiple houses at one time, I, sh- I should note. Uh, the collection always went with us as we went from one location to another. How many years were you guys moving around? Um, well, that was pretty much uh, growing up. Um, as mentioned, my dad was in the Navy, so uh, that, just, uh, that just meant uh, every few years there would be a new assignment. That said, uh, home was more or less San Diego, specifically Coronado in San Diego Bay. Uh, what happened was that my parents uh, had lived there even before I was born and uh, kept coming back to the island. They really enjoyed it there. And they eventually bought a house there in 77, which they owned straight up until 1994, after which my dad had retired from the Navy and he went on to a second career as a high school teacher up in his hometown of Carmel. And uh, so for that reason, we sort of kept coming back to... Uh, the house that we had in uh, Coronado, which conveniently was uh, only three blocks away from the library. And I think 
rather wonderfully, the library in Coronado is almost essentially the central building of the entire island in terms of how it's laid out and planned. It's uh, right at the center of the main drag, Orange Avenue as it's called, across from the main central park in the town as well. And it's nice to know that it is that building that has this particular pride of place, that it is the library, that it is seen to be something that when the town was, you know, more or less fully incorporated and developed in the late 1800s, uh, that was seen to be sort of a good central spot for it, and near to where the high school was and so forth. So my first ever paid job outside of odd jobs around the house was working as a uh, was a, a page at the local library there, and this would have been my senior year in high school, and it was a very natural progression for me uh, to go from that to working uh, at the SRLF, which is located at UCLA. The SRLF is short for the Southern Regional Library Facility. It was a job that was a building, rather, that was located uh, at the uh, on the UCLA campus, very near to where I lived, in the dorms there. I saw it when I was applying for jobs when I first come to UCLA, and I was like, okay, library jobs, hey, this building's right next to the dorms, that means it'll be easy to get to, I wonder what it is. I applied for the job, I got it, and I proceeded to work there for the remainder of my entire four years at UCLA. It was the one job I had. Oh, wow. And I eventually worked up in the ranks from just being someone pushing around books to being someone who was uh, essentially a cataloger, someone who was like, you know, tying together larger computer entries. As books came in, and I should explain for people, I need to backtrack. The Southern Regional Library facility, for those who do not know, is a UC facility. It is not a UCLA facility. It uh, is something that there is the Northern Regional Library facility as well. That's up at uh, Berkeley. And uh, this one at UCLA uh, catalogs uh, sort of spillover books and many other particular collections from Santa Barbara, uh, uh, Santa Barbara's campus in the UC system on south. So we're essentially all that half of the state. And so that meant with dealing with a lot of material there and just getting to know the getting to know more about some of the behind the scenes work that goes into a library because it was closed to the public in all in pretty much to the full extent aside from a small reading room so yeah, well, we got a tour of that facility i think about a year ago Mm-hmm. And yeah. a lot of collection, like high collections and deep collections. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. They were doing, I think, the the Google Digital um, book thing there too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. it's a building that is designed not for not for the people, but for the books. It is yeah. a storage facility, but it was also great for that reason because uh, as a storage facility, uh, it uh, was it's designed to be hospitable to books. Therefore, it's always very cool, if not downright cold. You would be the hot hottest day of the, of the year up in UCL at in Los Angeles. And people would often come in essentially with, you know, sweaters and other things like that just to make sure they could get through the day if they were working in the building in depth. So an odd sort of an environment, you could say, but there you go. And it's something that uh, it was uh, good to get to know get to know more about, as mentioned, cataloging work, library work, and the sense of patience and dedication that comes into working with so many different publications and things and just sort of tying everything together uh, to be precise, to have that eye for precision, and to just enjoy the range of what a high-level academic library, even in something like this, a spillover complex can encompass. It was quite something. What was your? Uh, what were you studying there? Well, I was studying uh, English Lit at the time, and uh, that eventually was the reason why I ended up at uh, UCI. And to sort of uh, wrap up that story uh, in... Uh 
in, uh, in, in small detail, one could say, is that uh, having applied to UC Irvine along with a variety of other schools for graduate work in literature, I got accepted, got a fellowship down here, and then concentrated on grad work uh, after I arrived in 1992. So I became a regular patron of the uh, UCI library system by default. I mean, there I was trying to do my research, as, as I did. Um, but at the same time, it was something that I was just sort of, uh, I, was, I wasn't as directly involved in library work uh, from that point forward, it was working more with uh, my graduate studies, working with my initial writing at the student newspaper, which has become sort of my other main pursuit, and uh, and doing a variety of other work as well. And what happened was is that uh, when it came time to working at, uh, at UC Irvine's uh, library system, that grew out of my decision to leave grad school. I essentially had yeah, I, I don't want to say I'd had enough, but it was kind of close oh. to it. I uh, and I decided, okay, I need to, you know, I need to sort of look around and see what else I can do and all that. And I just sort of want to step off this particular school treadmill, as it kind of had felt for me all this time. And so what had happened was is that uh, is that I had uh, I had been looking around for various local jobs. And a friend uh, who uh, still works uh, in the library system here, and uh, who is my friend Stripey, that's her nickname. She's you know not one to show out the name, so Stripey, Stripey is how she will forever be known <laughs> and all that. Uh, Stripey suggested, hey, there's a spot that's open here in the UCI library system, just something to consider. And, uh, and so I was like, okay, let me look into that. And in a short matter of a couple of weeks, I applied, was interviewed, was hired. And here I am, oh. and uh, officially hired as a library assistant to help out with uh, with uh, reserves, specifically Langston Library Reserves, which is, of course, one of the two main uh, libraries on campus. Langston covers humanities and social science, and then there's the separate science library. Uh, so uh, ever since early 1997, I have, in one capacity or another, another been working directly with uh, with Langston Library Reserves, uh, originally Main Library Reserves, uh, for all these years as part of a variety of other jobs and uh, duties that I have as well, but that's sort of the primary one. And uh, I am now officially the Reserve Supervisor, a kind of one-person job, uh, but it's a very involved one-person job, and I do work with a variety of colleagues to uh, help both with their work and they help with mine, so it's sort of like we all sort of uh, go in together to try and get everything done as best we can, including loan desk and so forth. So you can say it's the pretty uh, a pretty standard job in certain respects for a library assistant worker, as I officially am. Again, no MLS degree, no particular goal in getting one. Uh, just uh, to uh, to work with uh, members of the public, to work with uh, to work with students, professors, people putting things on reserve, and so forth. And that's also meant over time, and maybe this sort sort of lead us into more talking about uh, digital resources in general. Uh, t- working with uh, reserves as it has shifted more to an electronic context, as uh, more and more material has been made available via licensed databases such as JSTOR, EBSCO, and many other things besides. And as we now are starting to approach uh, more thoroughly, there have been certainly initial efforts with this, uh, working with e-books and uh, seeing how they work. So we are we are very much. Uh, collectively as a as a university institution looking at this and getting more involved with it and I mostly am just simply a uh, spectator, you could say, to these uh, broader decisions as they are made but I'm very interested to see where they will go next and uh, I've already had some sort of uh, ideas about what will be coming down the pike soon on uh, on more electronic resources uh, on those fronts and I'm very 
very interested to see how they will uh, how will be carried out and how we will be working with them and our academic clientele and our student clientele as well. Yeah, I myself had to use a lot of e-reserves recently for my um, film degree here. We had a lot of um, film articles uploaded as PDFs to the library reserves page mm-hmm. here. It, that's something that uh, it's switching very much more uh, to uh, to the uh, to the wider licensed uh, uh, resources because uh, that's something that uh, it's more convenient, uh, more stable, you could say. It's just a matter of pointing to where it is. But that was definitely a transitional phase that I think where you're sort of like, you know, we are we are looking towards uh, always sort of maximizing what we already have to hand. But there are those, uh, those individual articles. Some cases there are the... Uh, unpublished essays by uh, professors or colleagues uh, who, with their permission, are more than happy to upload and share because that way it's a chance to sort of share knowledge in a disseminated context uh, that's uh, sort of a little more convenient. And again, it's a way for, uh, again, colleagues in the departments and sometimes colleagues of professors who work elsewhere, they say, oh yes, you know, by all means, please, uh, you know, just share it out in that particular class context. And that's always nice because it's a, it's a way to sort of, they get to gauge how, uh, how a, uh, how a particular class audience will react to some of the stuff that they're working on. And in some cases, it's, uh, it's members of the classes themselves or people who have been in past versions of the classes who are, uh, who are making um, material available that way, again, with their permission, to, uh, for use, uh, to use in that context as well. So there's a wide variety of things that go on with uh with e-reserves and it's a a long entangled story <laughs> is yeah. what it is but it, it is very interesting to see how it all plays out and when, at what point did you get involved with the radio station again well the radio station uh was something that uh that grew out of uh my work at ucla's radio station i started to work there in 1989 and had just for three years essentially since it started about a year after i came to ucla which is 88 so from 89 to 92 i worked constantly at uh, kla and uh, made many friends, uh, their uh, fellow DJs, uh, perhaps most famously uh, a good friend and colleague, Eric J. Lawrence, who has now been working at KCRW for many, many years and uh, broadcast there and just a great guy. His success is well-deserved. And uh, in any event, when I came here, in 1992, uh, it was very easy for me to just sort of literally knock on the door, find the station. It was almost one of the first things I did was to find the station and say, I'm an incoming grad student. I was working at UCLA's radio station. I'm here now. What do I do? And yeah. so pretty rapidly I got a show after that point. And then I uh, DJed uh, regularly uh, from 1992 to 2000, after which time, as my focus on on the one hand, library work, since it was my regular job at that point, but also on the other hand, focusing more on my writing as being more of a sort of vehicle to sort of get my thoughts out there was a little more easy to do that than necessarily just feel like I was broadcasting to almost, you know, just a more limited audience at that time as uh, the KUCI website and streaming and all that. Everything was still very much in more of the incipient stages. We were starting to get some initial things out there, but it wasn't fully as popularized yet, as you could say. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the switch to a switch away from KUCI at that point, but uh, which is why it's great to see just how much more readily available that type of uh, that type of uh, that type of broadcasting ability, podcasting, however you want to call it, is now. It's a marvelous way to uh, do much more with the technological tools to hand. Yeah, and you continue your musical interests through writing, correct? You write mm-hmm. for a lot of online and published. Um, do you want to give some examples? Well, uh, the uh, the the arena you could say I've worked in the most, if that's the right term, uh, is uh, the All Music Guide, uh, where I've been regularly freelance writing since 1997. It 
and the library job essentially started the same year to one extent or another, and the two have sort of gone in tandem. Uh, and uh, that's uh, always just been a, an overriding key pursuit, which I very much enjoyed. I forget the exact number of reviews I've done for them over time. I've heard it's something like 4,000 plus, so oh, wow. who, who knows? I've, I've written a lot for them. That's the best way to put it. So a variety of bands, a variety of things. And uh, besides that as well, a number of uh, publications, both online and in print or both, uh, most commonly these days, um, I, uh, I work for the OC Weekly. I've been doing that as a freelance writing work now for about two, three years, maybe more. What I, genres? Of- oh, whatever catches my interest. Uh, I am going to be working on a uh, upcoming story on the band School of Seven Bells as a bit of a concert preview story for them. That was just recently assigned at my request. And I do a uh, news feature uh, through uh, the OC Weekly's uh, Herd Mentality blog called Beat Boulevard, which uh, concentrates on local releases. Uh, we're now doing that. That runs every Monday. And it's just a brief sort of, hey, you know, here's a new release this week, just talking about it, and just sort of uh, just giving some thoughts and uh they we've covered everything at this point now from uh like uh, two-person guitar pop bands to an up-and-coming metal band to whatever else is around. We've got some other stuff down the pike that are sort of like you know, obscure folk stuff, uh, other things like that. Again, it's all local, and that gives a sense of the type of things that I'm interested in. I'm, I'm primarily interested in good sounds, whatever they may happen to be. And I think uh, the past ten years, whatever else one might can say about it, as we've seen changes in the music industry, as we've seen changes uh, in terms of figuring out what access is, how the compensation of artists and much more besides. Nonetheless, we are looking at uh, a time when uh, we can see that there is so much available that on the one hand, there is the, you know, the danger, one can say, of being totally drowned in it. On the other hand, it does give one opportunities to explore and listen to many new things that one wouldn't have had the chance to easily have done do so in the past. And now that is much more convenient, and I think that's, uh, I think that's something that uh, is is really inspiring if you're looking for all sorts of things out there if you're trying to see what is there if you have a drive to sort of just explore what might be found and uh and try and sort of make one's just personal discoveries of one's own yeah that's great that you can um use your writing to focus on your musical interests rather than just uh, being on the radio necessarily <laughs> well i mean it just it's one it's one approach of many i mean that's the mm-hmm. key thing i mean uh some of my uh some of my favorite writers some friends uh do do bounce it off very well uh, my friend Maura Johnston excellent writer and increasingly through her work on uh, on features on NPR and other things like this and showing that she's been you know being able to balance that off and we're seeing ma- there are many other people like that as well it's just a chance to sort of that is uh that is even a uh Again, that provi- there are much more opportunities now for uh, people to uh, to do that, uh, whether one wants to concentrate on the written word or spoken pieces or any other combination of things, video pieces, as we can see. Mm-hmm. And uh, that'll just keep growing and as more and more people sort of experiment and see what works best for them. That's why I think working in the library is a good, great job for the, doing all this um you know, as your as your second job, it gives you a lot of. Um, I feel for me, library work is non-stressful environment very great for thinking of your other creative outlets besides well i mean i i would say that uh i would say with with the wisdom of experience i mean every every job has its own particular pressures and every job has its own particular concerns and uh i i would not uh, necessarily be giving a rose-colored glasses view of working at a library um in the sense that uh you know we we everyone deals with the particular situations they have every situation is individual and uh and having said that uh i mean 
the, there's a reason I've been working at the job yeah. since 1997. It is something that uh, I have enjoyed very, very much. I feel I have learned a lot. Uh, the uh, the ability to work with so many, uh, to uh, work with so many different people, to meet so many different people, to uh, to be able to work as in reserves. Uh, professors are assigning new research, new books that come out, and when a class term is ended, all these books that you've sort of seen, you're like, boy, I'd really like to read that. There's a chance to sort of do so again when the class term is over and they're not needed for class use anymore. Then you would have the opportunity to sort of read through yourself and make uh, make uh, make your own individual research, you could say, and learning about situations. It's a it's a marvelous, marvelous way to uh, sort of keep learning to know that learning does not stop with the acquisition of a degree. And that's mm-hmm. uh, something that libraries have always facilitated uh, very, very well. Yeah, that's how I feel working in, uh, next to the film collection and seeing what professors put on reserve for film classes or just any mm-hmm. class where they put films on. And then after you know they're down off reserves, it's like, oh, I want to see that that they just <laughs> used in their class. And mm-hmm. that actually um, is where I worked before I decided to go back for a film degree. I think that was probably part of the reason it's like a really oh i'm surrounded by all these films i want to learn in mm-hmm. class what these are all about so even after um pursuing a librarian position i do want to focus on film mm-hmm. and anything media art or music related so that, that's like um exciting we can all do what interests us not just a job mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then um now that brings us to the middle of the show let's play our middle song our first song was a great one that you picked, Sub-Librarian. Never heard of that one. Yeah, Piano Magic is the name of the band. I Am the Sub-Librarian is the name of the song. Mar- marvelous band. Uh, their, earliest, uh, their earliest albums uh, for some are still their best, but uh, some of the more recent ones are, each- are excellent as well. But just a good band. Check them out. Oh, yes. And now let's hear a song um, by Hey Mercedes. Here's a song called Stay Six. And um, I play them because they're from... Like, with our guest Ned on our digital future. Hello. Thanks for coming down and talking about yourself and your knowledge. And <laughs> I understand you did a talk this April 2010 at the EMP Pop Conference. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you shared there? Sure. And I'll also say, in case people have been wondering what the music behind it has been playing all this time after we played Slow Dive at the start, uh, this is uh, a couple selections from one of my favorite uh, albums of, uh, I don't want to say of all time, but just one of my favorite albums. I've uh, had it for a long time. It's uh, the uh, composer Arvo Pert, uh, P-A-R-T, but uh, umlaut over the uh, A. And it's uh, selections from uh, the collection Tabula Rasa. So I could I could go on about it. Great, great stuff. Anyway, um, but to talk about uh, the piece that Zeebo was referring to, uh, this was a piece that uh, was my most recent, you could say, formal presentation, uh, or one of them this year. Uh, this was uh, at the EMP Pop Conference, as mentioned, which is an annual conference that's been going for oh, 10 years now, or just about 10 years. I need to double-check that. Uh, and uh, mostly it's been happening all this time up in Seattle. Uh, the next edition will actually be at UCLA, so that'll be coming up in uh, February. They just put out the call for papers recently. But the conference itself uh, is uh, designed for anybody who is interested in music and uh, potential impact, you could say, on a variety of fronts, to uh, to uh, offer to pitch and make presentations, much like any, any academic conference that's out there. And uh, for this particular uh, year, I pitched the idea of what I called uh, the listener as electronic librarian. And I won't go into everything about that presentation here. There's simply not enough time. 
if uh, anyone is interested in uh, in uh, reading or watching the presentation as it was recorded, uh, it is all hosted on my website, and I should give out my website information. This is just my general public putting up thoughts and things and links to pieces as they come and, and stuff like that. It is hosted currently at uh, Ned Raggett, uh, my name, N-E-D-R-A-G-G-E-T-T dot WordPress, uh, WordPress dot com. And uh, if you go there, uh, you can use the search function on there, or you can do a general Google search. My name, Ned Raggett, listener as electronic librarian, and then EMP or EMP POF conference. You should be able to find the blog entry, which, again, has both the full, uh, the full text of the presentation as well as uh, the YouTube clips uh, talking about it. So... All that said, uh, the uh, the presentation was uh, was something. It was a way to sort of tie together, you could say, two big interests of mine. On the one hand, the work I've done uh, in libraries and uh, thinking about li- thinking about uh, personal libraries all this time, and uh, as well as uh, talking about music. And uh, it was part meditation, part observation, you could say. And to talk about sort of one particular aspect of it for in the context of uh, in the context of libraries and digital collections for this show. Uh, one point I was trying to make, and this is rather glibly put, but I'll repeat it here from the presentation, was the idea that we are all our own librarians now. We, we, are, we maintain our libraries. This is something that uh, isn't necessarily shocking. Anybody who's ever collected something, collected things, that whether it's books or records or anything, has essentially been making a small library of their own. What about on iTunes? But that's the thing. As we move now into this, uh, into a digital realm, everyone has now the potential, and in many cases does, massive, massive digital libraries that we now have and maintain. And again, my uh, presentation goes into this in a little more detail, so I won't uh, talk about it too much here. But uh, drawing out from that, the idea that, uh, that we are our own librarians has had some very interesting implications, you could say, uh, in terms of how music resources can now be viewed. And as mentioned, I am not a trained librarian. I do not have an MLS degree, so a lot of the bigger issues, you could say, are not really the best of things I can talk about in a certain sort of, oh, okay, it's like this. Uh, so I don't want to be seen as doing that. Rather, I want to look instead for uh, for what time we have here left, and there's still some time to go, uh, about uh, the role of the individual enthusiast online to be able to host, maintain, and, uh, and, and do a lot with one's individual collections. And when I say that, I don't simply mean uh, simply someone looking at their own record collection saying, wow, I have this, or posting up a listing of what they have, which some can do and some have done. And back in the 90s, you would get quite a bit of that. People would essentially maintain these little databases online and, and things like that, or just talk about what they had or just whatever. But of course, increasingly, now that music is this more open resource, now that music can be more easily and readily shared, of course, it is a question of whether or not that... Uh, whether or not you know permission is granted, is it something that can be purchased? Is it something that's being put out there? A bigger issue itself entirely, and I'll I'll get back to that in a bit. But the point is, is that uh, we can now, through so many sources, hear all this stuff. And so the uh, even though the what may be seen as the traditional role of certain cultural gatekeepers may have changed, the advantage is is now that there are a lot more potential individual gatekeepers, people who can, by virtue of the knowledge that they have and the dedication that they bring to what they're talking 
talking about and what they're interested in can provide a lot more for a lot more people than would have been able to have been done in the past uh, much more easily and much more universally, quite literally, as long as one has access to one extent or another to a computer or to, uh, to a way to sort of see what's out there. And, uh, and hey, a little burst of music right there. Uh, but, uh, but to, uh, to, uh, to talk a little bit more about uh, um, two examples of what I'm trying to say here. Uh, first off, uh, there is, uh, there is, oof, sorry, the music is actually <laughs> almost distracting me really at this point, so it's sort of like getting lost here. I'm sort of trying to find my train of thought. Apologies to everyone. Um, to, uh, to talk a little bit more about uh, two examples of this kind of dedication, this kind of individual curatorship that I mentioned, I'd like to talk about two uh, music blogs that have been uh, going uh, for a little while that are both very notable in terms of how they work with this idea of of uh, presenting something to a wider audience, to an audience that would want a certain kind of expertise, is looking for a certain kind of definitiveness. In other words, they're not just simply seeing what's out there. There is an actual thirst for concrete knowledge, concrete information, concrete details, you could say. And uh, the first is uh, the blog, and I'm going to call it up right here on my uh, on my phone so I can read out the exact... Uh, exact URL properly here, so pardon me. Uh, this is the uh, blog. Uh, this is the blog called uh, Recycle, and officially it's uh, called Recycle New Joy Division and New Order: The Factory Years. Its website address, if anyone would like to investigate it, is New Order Dash Not Underscore Dash Recycle Dot Blogspot Dot Com. And uh, this is something that was started, and I'll sort of call up the uh, actual uh, actual curator's note on here about this project, because that'll say it better than I can, just trying to give it a summary. And I'm just calling it up right here, and I'm going to focus it in. Okay, so uh, as described by the uh, owner of the blog, a careful restoration of Joy Division and New Order's years on factory records, and maybe a little before and a little after. Then there are further details about uh, the exact mastering done for the tracks here. For instance, all tracks were taken from the best earliest possible sources to avoid modern mastering techniques. Tracks sourced from the vinyl have been carefully cleaned and EQ levels have been tweaked for consistency. Artwork was scanned at the highest possible resolution. Type was reset when possible using the original fonts. Then a further note here, which is very important. All of these singles are out of print. Many of the tracks have never appeared on CD. This was a labor of love from a small, devoted circle of fans. These singles changed my life, and I hope they change yours too. And if you like what you hear, support the band by purchasing their catalog. So what you're seeing right here is, that gives a sense, and if you explore the blog, you'll be able to see exactly what detail they really went into this, and the appreciativeness of everyone involved, the comments alone say it all, about uh, people who really wanted to share the music that was here, share it in as pure a form as possible, but in as wide a form as possible, acknowledging the fact that it is something that, on the one hand, the singles themselves were very much out of print, but on the other hand, uh, that the music uh, that the band had created was out there and is still very much out there for purchase to show a support of the band. Now, for a lot of people, this almost seems like a fig leaf these days. The idea you put this little note on, oh, this is just a disclaimer, you know, and all this, you know, just, you know, delete something you get only after 24 hours. But uh, the point here is that this was something that wasn't just that. This was something that uh, there was care taken into uh, the the exact printing run of the singles, if there were particular covers in question, if there were lost tracks, one might say, stuff that had never surfaced on wider releases. 
this kind of thing can be seen throughout the blog, and I think it's very good to see that. You see an example of how a small group of people, and in this case there are a few people involved behind the blog, about a total of, I think, counting the blog hosts and a couple of other folks, about four or five were sort of the key people behind this uh, particular blog project, really wanted to just share the stuff out there, acknowledging on the one hand that it is a commercial and artistic product, but on the other hand, bringing their own knowledge to bear in such a wonderful, detailed way that it, uh, for a lot of people, was a chance to sort of hear the band with new, new and fresh ears. And it was done with the tacit approval of the band's management. So this is a case where there was, it wasn't simply put up there. It was a case where the band's management were aware of what was going on, and let it ride. So it's a case of showing showing how something can be done that's not simply saying, oh, here's the music, enjoy. It's more sort of like, no, no, here's something here, and partnerships can evolve. It's a very interesting way of how this type of individual effort can have some impact. And, uh, Whoa, time's really getting away from me here, so I'll briefly talk about uh, another more recent project that I've discovered that I really appreciate. It is called, uh, the address of this one is Whippet, that's W. H-I-P-P-E-T, so like the dog, whippetatthewheel.blogspot.com. And this particular blog is dedicated to the out-of-print work of the uh, late Scottish singer uh, Billy McKenzie, who most famously sang with the band The Associates back in the 80s and then embarked on a solo career and unfortunately passed on back in 1997. And the particular point of this blog, and again I will quote from the uh, blog statement right here from its owner, Whippet at the Wheel will not post stuff that is available to buy. Support Billy's estate and the other musicians by buying the available albums or CDs. Everything here has been burned from the vinyl, cassettes, or occasionally CDs in my collection. Uh, if anyone out there objects to any of the material posted on this tiny little fan blog of otherwise unavailable music, contact me, please. I am doing this blog in the hope that by opening my wee treasure trove of obscure riches, it will cast a greater light on the immense talent that was the Associates. And again, in this one-person project, what, uh, what Sid Law, who is the pseudonym of the person behind the blog, what uh, he's been able to do all this time, is that while the vast majority of the Associates albums uh, have been back in print, were digitally remastered, in fact, they all were, really, as, long as, as, well, as, uh, as well as everything that was formerly released, uh, both during his lifetime, as well as, uh, as, well as uh, after he passed, in terms of big album collections, a huge, huge amount of uh, B-sides, one-offs, rare tracks, uh, alternate versions never got that treatment. So this is sort of his way of kind of filling in the cracks, you could say, trying to point out here's here's some here are all the other little things that are out there scattered. And on the one hand, acknowledging that the the uh, the economics of the business probably wouldn't allow for a number of these tracks to be given this sort of scrubbed up and polished up feature. But on the other hand, is uh, is acknowledging that and sort of therefore by focusing in on these items that were the out-of-print items, that were the obscurities, that were the things that never got caught up in the larger issue program, it is a chance for someone who wants to be an obsessive expert, if one would like, on the band, uh, on the bands, uh, uh, on the associates, on Billy McKenzie, to see what else is out there. It's something that both is fan service, you could say, but also fills a necessary gap. It is able to provide a completer picture by including all these other things that were out there. And it's a marvelous example of what the individual effort can do because uh, there's also uh, scanned artwork. Uh, there's, uh, there's from lost singles and things like that. And putting it all together this way shows how one person can make a difference, can become a resource on a wider basis. And again, Billy McKenzie is gone, uh, but you know, his estate is very much there. And it's a case where uh, it's done something that's done to complement 
his work that is out there that is available for purchase for investigation uh, rather than supersede it. And uh, sort of having to wrap up here because, again, I'm sort of keeping an eye on the time and I have to sort of keep my own s- schedule here right here. So uh, thanks again to Ziba for uh, oh, yeah. inviting me down on this. I'd like to just simply wrap up uh, this uh, my little spiel here by noting that uh, I think that uh, as we move towards the idea of into the digital future to use the theme of to use the theme of your show and the digital libraries these kind of individual efforts something beyond simply ripping and sharing torrents and putting things out there just almost without comment these kind of curated efforts will be seen to be more and more important with time to be seen as and these are just two examples of many type of things out there and we'll see these kind of partnerships I think evolve between uh, between official websites between record companies hopefully and then and then uh, between that and then these smaller individual efforts to try and sort of keep account everything that is out there to be able to sort of uh, be a wider resource to be able to provide information for someone who is looking for more and it'll be interesting to see how this further evolves I don't think this is the end of the story these are simply two examples right now but I think that uh, I think that uh, there's a great great range of possibilities for uh, for fans, you could say, for people who are truly dedicated, aware, helpful, intelligent, uh, and, uh, and just, uh, just thoughtful curators of work, thought people who want to do the best by the people who actually created the work in the first place, if those people aren't curating their own work themselves. And there are plenty of musicians out there who are doing similar with their own out-of-print work and just simply saying, hey, you know, here it is for the world. And that's great, you know, again, if they choose to do that. And that leads us to the question of sort of like, you know, what should be available, what shouldn't be available, a very, very, very broad and perhaps unanswerable question that would take other discussions and other debates uh, yeah. beyond what we could do right here. But it's a very important to keep in mind. This is not just simply a matter of, it's like, as I keep saying, it shouldn't be a matter of, hey, here it is for everyone for free. Rather, mm-hmm. it's a matter of, okay, how are you doing this? What are the reasons? What are the rationales? And do you live up to your stated goals? We have two examples here, I think, of, uh, of blogs that do do that and do share music, and I think, in this kind of you know excellent way. We will see where it goes from there. Yeah. Thank you for coming down. And yeah, no, pleasure to be invited on. I uh, hope, hope we didn't bore too many people out there but, oh, and all no. that. So, But I'll turn things back over to Ziba since I need to be bowing out and oh, yeah. all that. So, uh, But again, if anyone would like to keep catch up with me or just fire off thoughts, questions, or anything like that, I'd be happy to uh, hear from you. Uh, my email address uh, that has been always the case for many, many years is simply ned at KUCI.org. Huh. But again, uh, my blog address, uh, which is kind of my central website, uh, Ned Raggett, last name R-A-G-G-E-T-T. Dot wordpress.com oh yes thank you very much thank you thank you so that there was Ned Raggett here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and that's it for this week on Our Digital Future with me ZBZ where we discuss the future of our information spaces which to me that means libraries and specifically the future in regards to film, media, art, radio, music. You know, everything is a library when you put it in some spot and organize it. Just as Ned was talking about. Check out again his website at nedragget.wordpress.com. And uh, next week our guest will be Antoinette. Let's talk about film and different library specialties we enjoy 
here in the background you're hearing some high llamas. Uh, lots of 